Hey listeners, before we begin, I've got some important news to share with you. Starting in 2022, the Highland Southern Baptist Podcast will be rebranded to Highland Gospel Mission. This change is simply to reflect our global outreach mission and reach a broader audience. We look forward to serving the community in the new year. Welcome back to the Highland Southern Baptist Podcast. If you're new here, feel free to listen to any one of our previous episodes. Our mission is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ from Hillsborough, Missouri to the rest of the world. Now, here's Pastor Keith with this week's message. You want to get your Bibles, open them up to the gospel according to Luke. The main part of the message is going to be in chapter 3, but we're going to go back, um, we're going to go back to chapter 2, verse 41. And I'll read through this to kind of, I'm sorry, 39. We'll say 39 to begin the paragraph through uh, verses 52 in chapter 2. But we'll, again, the meat of the message be in chapter 3. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was like as a child? We've got to preface this with Jesus was perfect, amen? He had to be perfect, amen? He couldn't be, he couldn't be, he couldn't have flaws, Right? Um, I mean, you can come pretty close to the line without crossing it. I understand that. Do I think that Jesus never aggravated his parents? I doubt it. Jesus probably aggravated his parents quite a bit. But you got to wonder if, you know, the things you see your grandkids do and the things that you know that we did when we were little, was Jesus the same type? Was he the same type? Um, now, any time that we look at Jesus' childhood or what we're going to lead into with part of the life of John the Baptist, how these two things actually tie together, um, we have to take a look at Christ first, all right? Because uh, basically, Jesus was the fulfillment of the requirement for an individual to not suffer the penalty or consequences of death. That's a pretty awesome story, amen? It's a story that's worth getting out, right? Um, John the Baptist was the forerunner. We're going to dig a little deeper into what a forerunner is. John the Baptist being a forerunner of Christ, we also are called to be forerunners of Christ. And there's some very specific instructions in here. But we can't look at John the Baptist and what John the Baptist says without looking at Jesus and what Jesus' birth was promised or I should say what was promised to us through Jesus' birth. Um, even, even on uh, Wednesday night when we did the, uh, the candlelight service, um, the announcement. I mean, if, if, if you look at the big picture of things, you look at God creating man, the fall of man, creating a separation between God and man, and then when the time was right, he was sending his son to pay the penalty um, and restore the relationship. So... The restoration of the relationship is completely and totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. That message is an extremely important message, which is why in the Christmas story, we hear not just one, but two instances where angels showed up and announced to two different groups of people about the birth of the Savior. And he didn't just announce the birth of a Savior. He announced it like this. I have great what is it? Good news of, of uh, great joy. I have good tidings of great joy. For there is born unto you today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, if you imagine for thousands of years, prophets 
have been prophesying about the coming of this baby. They never got to see the benefits or the fruits of that labor. They never, they never received the blessings that we get through Christ. Those individuals served knowing that they were serving, according to Peter, not themselves, but us. They were serving us. Um, how hard would it be to work your entire life and not get to see the fruit of that labor? Pretty tough, right? But here's what the prophets had that almost nobody else did. When Jesus spoke, or I should say when God prophesied about the coming of the Christ, do you think that this would not have been exciting news for, for all of the Jews? I mean, if do you want what's best... I'm, let me let me rephrase this. Do you want? Oh, maybe not rephrase this. If if we get the first part of the story first, then it makes what what John is or what uh, Luke was actually talking about with John. It makes it not so much as a command just to put a burden on your shoulders. In other words, it's, there are people who say, I want to be obedient, I want to be faithful. They just run out and share the faith with everybody. I told you a couple weeks ago that was not the way God intended it to be. You do throw your pearls before swine when you do that. It's not something that it's not something you can just run out and f- try to force people to be a part of. In order for us to be able to effectively reach people for Christ, it's not just about the serving, but we have to remember why we serve. The first part of the story certainly affects the second part of the story in this passage of Scripture. So we'll stop along the way a little bit and take a look at some things that I thought were just kind of neat. So in, in chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 39, I'm going to read straight through the remainder of this chapter. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking, looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. When his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which, we, which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued to, I want you to pay attention, close attention to this. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Why do you suppose they pointed out in verse 51 
that he continued in subjection. Ask you a simple question. How would it make you feel if you knew that you were the parents of God? Would that be intimidating at all? I mean, at the age of 12, did he have the power to snap his finger and make his mom and dad disappear? He absolutely did. See, Jesus as a child was the perfect picture of who we are supposed to be. What are we called? Christians. Christ-like, little Christs. As little Christs, we're supposed to be people who stay in subjection to authority as well. And I'm not talking about authorities that tell you to do things outside of God's will, but I'm talking about those standard authorities that are in everybody's life. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, subjected himself to two human parents. I want you to let that sink in. God subjected himself to two human parents. How many of you guys ever had a kid or knew a kid that knew it all? Could you imagine being the parent of Jesus who does know it all? But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't lash out. As a matter of fact, in these verses, he sounded almost surprised. Because how many days did they look for him? They went one day's journey when they found out that he was missing. They went back to Jerusalem and they looked for him for how many days? Three days. Twelve-year-old kid, four days apart from their parent. And Jesus' response is, is priceless. They're like, we've been running around here looking for you for three days. And I could just see Jesus with this confused look on his face go, why have you been looking for me? You actually got the visit from Gabriel. You were impregnated without doing the act that accomplishes that. It was miraculous. Your husband was visited by an angel and was told that this is from the Lord. You do not leave her. Do you think that they really had no clue who they were dealing with? They knew their kid was Jesus. And Jesus is like, you were looking for me and it took you three days to check the temple? He wasn't being disrespectful. The King James Version actually uses it and it's accurate in the, in the Greek. Woman. Woman wasn't a disrespectful term. It was a term of endearment. It was like we, we call our mom's mom. They didn't call mom's mom back then. They called them woman or man, or, and it was considered something that was not disrespectful at all. But when we pick up the picture on this, Jesus is born, announcements were made, the importance of this birth, salvation coming through the life of this child. Then we had this child growing 12 years later from an infant, 12 years later, this kid could have went anywhere he wanted to in Jerusalem. I mean, how many? if you left your kid for 12 days inside a city the size of Jerusalem, what would they do? Think they'd go to church? Think a 12-year-old go to church? This one did. Did you know that I had to be in my father's house? I'll spend a couple minutes on this. 
did you not know that I have to be in my father's house? It wasn't that there was nothing else in the world that was interesting. And it, I don't even believe that it was the mission that Jesus was sent on. Fellowship with the Father will always create a desire to be in the Father's presence. Always. If we ever get ourselves to a point in our lives where we don't desire to go to church, there's a problem with the relationship. This is why Jesus said, Father, let them be one as we are one. Because the fellowship that was shared between the Father and the Son, up until the point that that fellowship was broken, through him taking on the sins of the world, was a relationship that was inseparable. And would have never been separable had it not been for the cost the cost of what was required in order for salvation and restoration to be brought to God's people. I noticed as I, as I, as I went through this, I kind of flashed back in my, my own life, and I'm sure that you've got your own flashes and those times where, where uh, And, and I know I've said this before, but it's hard for me to figure out why people don't want to go to church when they're, when they're going through things. And it's not even about church. Again, it goes back to the relationship. If we, don't get, if we don't get the importance of this message, and we don't get the attachments that it creates throughout these passages of Scripture to the responsibility of the church, the church is it's going to suffer. And it's going to suffer big. And again, it shouldn't be because people are sitting in church all across this country today and the preacher's standing in the, in, the, in, the pulp, in the pulpit telling them what they need to do. It's not a matter of telling people what they need to do. It's a matter of being a person that God can use to bring lost people to him. All of the benefits of the peace and love and uh, the strength and all those things are great things, Okay. But if there's one mistake the world's making today, is it's making the church about what they consider to be all great things. And what is the cost? What, what do we lose in the mix? We lose the power of the very act that brings us here every week in the first place. Let's look at, look at chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. He came into the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I've got to stop there and explain this a little bit because there is a difference between the baptisms that were happening um, before Christ died and the baptisms that happened after Christ died. These, this is a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. So basically, when somebody was baptized pre-Christ, someone who was not necessarily a, a traditional uh, Judaist, but someone who had grasped fully, because we all know that before John was even born, he was the first 
ever to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came into, into uh, when Mary came into Elizabeth's presence, and it says that the baby jumped in the womb, John the Baptist recognized Jesus in the womb, and he was the first person to ever have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So as him being someone who didn't necessarily hold to, to the traditional side of things, he actually gives us a, he gives us a very um, opposite comparison, a contrast um, between um, what the, the Judaism was teaching and what John the Baptist was trying to present through Christ. Okay, So the responsibility here is this is not John the Gospel according to John. This is John the Baptist. Okay, And when we look at John the Baptist, a lot of people say John the Baptist is weird. Why do they think he's weird? What do you wear? Camel's hair, right? What did he eat? Locust and honey. He ate grasshoppers. Can we all say it together? Mmm. He was a man who just did not stick with the system as the system was the status quo. For him, it wasn't a matter of it wasn't a matter of him going to town and enjoying a nice meal. For him, it was he understood that he had responsibilities. And there were people on the bank of the Jordan immediately following this. Um, I mean, honestly, it would be it would be it would be kind of like John the Baptist avoiding the responsibility so that he could pamper himself. And this is the point. Camel's hair and eating wild locusts, uh, wild honey and locusts. Is it gross? I mean, it's not if that's all you ate, right? I mean, he probably looked forward to lunch. He was humble. He ate what he needed to sustain life. To him, I mean, I am completely the opposite of John the Baptist. This is a struggle for me. I like to eat, and I like good food. And my wife thinks I'm weird because... A lot of times I'll go out to lunch and I'll go in and sit at a restaurant at a table by myself and she's like, you eat by yourself? And I was like, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> Just turn the phone off and sit <laughs> to the table and eat your meal. What if I was getting ready to go have me a nice meal somewhere, something that I really enjoy, an emergency happens? It's okay to just leave the, is it okay to just forget about the emergency and go and satisfy that hunger? for whatever type of food it was that I was craving that day. John the Baptist was not about. He wasn't about going out and earning a bunch of money because if he was earning a bunch of money in his shoes, not drawing that line today, but in his shoes, if he was out earning money, what was he not doing? He wasn't on the bank of that Jordan River. He wasn't doing what God had actually called him to do in the womb. Potentially at conception. John the Baptist, being a humble individual, understood very clearly the difference between what it was that was pampering him and what it was that was necessary in order for the plan of God to be carried out. Well, what's necessary? And I've said many times before, I have. it is so confusing in, to me as to why God would involve us in this whole thing. But he did. We're not a small part. We're a big part. We're the mouthpiece. We're ambassadors. Take a look at what he says in these next verses. He says in verse 4, As it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Stop there. Pick this apart. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is what John the Baptist was called. John the Baptist wasn't in the synagogues. He wasn't going into places to force. These people came to him. And when these individuals come to him, he told them the truth. He said, hey, that repentance or baptism unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's about to give one of them a pretty hard time or some of them a pretty hard time because they showed up and their individuals that he knew weren't individuals who were, who were desiring to carry the life that God called them into out. He knew, he knew they weren't. So in the call out, the call out, one crying in the wilderness You don't need a city. You don't need a population. Go tell it on the mountain. Who are you telling? You ever see one of them park bench preachers? You ever see one of them? They're weird. Is there anything wrong with them standing on a park bench shouting the gospel? Nope. They ain't addressing any specific person. They're addressing everybody. They're addressing anybody that may, that may listen. And there may be somebody that comes to know the Lord because somebody stepped up on a park bench and started speaking the truth out loud without caring about what it made them look like or what it made them feel like. John was that guy. John was the guy that today somebody would see in a park and say was an absolute weirdo because it seemed as though he was an absolute weirdo. Why? Because he was peculiar. Does that sound familiar? What's another word for peculiar? Weird. In other words, we just don't fit in. John didn't fit in. John proclaims the gospel. He's wearing camel's hair. And I'm telling you, it's not like the suit that I used to own. When you open it up on the inside, the tag says made with genuine camel hair. We're talking about cutting this stuff off of a camel, drying it out, treating it, and putting it on his body for his clothing. Weird. There was nobody in Israel at that time wearing animal hair. They, weren't, they always wore their white, nice guys and girls walking around their dresses. John was a weirdo. And because he was a weirdo, he was an outcast. And if we're supposed to be John the Baptist, what does that mean for us? Be a weirdo and be an outcast. Because that's where Jesus Christ associates with us. Jesus was the one that said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Slowly being silenced, slowly being chopped out of the culture. Next verse. Look at four again. We'll reach, we're going to read straight through these, and then we'll take a look at all of them all together. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Crying out. Crying out the gospel in the wilderness. This passage of scripture comes in from the Old Testament, comes into his mind, and it gives very specific, I want you to look closely at what this has to say. 
Make ready the way of the Lord. How can we do that? You know, what, you know what those verses are really pointing out? We do that by removing obstacles. Not being an obstacle. Not creating obstacles. But by removing obstacles. If the valley's too deep for the gospel to get to the other side, then what are we supposed to do? Fill it. If the mountain or the hill's too high for the gospel to be heard on the other side of it, what do we do? We take it down. We remove the obstacle. And I've just started this like two weeks ago, but it's changed, it's honestly changed the way that I'm going to start looking at everything. Everything. First question ever to ask under any circumstance. What do you think the question is? Where's the obstacle? It applies 100% of the time. Where's the obstacle? You unhappy? Where's the obstacle? You sad? Where's the obstacle? Can't share the gospel? Uncomfortable? Where's the obstacle? I've been driving quite a few times in pretty bad storms. Anybody ever been driving and you find a tree and a tree fall down the road? Best solution. Well, I mean, I could just turn around and go a different way, right? Well, what's that do? creates a problem for the next person that comes along, right? I didn't fix anything. I just fixed my problem. I didn't fix theirs, right? Obstacles in the way. It's preventing them from getting where it is that they want to go, where it is that God is actually trying to take them. So if we're Christians and we walk up and we drive up on a tree that's across the street, the first thing we shouldn't think is, that's going to make me tired. I'm going to turn around and go around. The first thing we think is, what if Elaine's the second car? It should matter. We should be individuals who are looking, who are looking at the, the, the announcement of this baby and how huge this information is, how much it impacts everything in the world. Every individual has been touched by it. And then it jumps straight to John the Baptist. And it says, John, your job? Remove the obstacles. The road's crooked, make it straight. If there's a mountain between here and there, take the mountain down. If there's a valley between here and there, fill it up. That's really what our jobs are, folks. That's our responsibility as Christians. In a nutshell, that is absolutely our responsibility as Christians. All that Jesus has ever asked us to do, that is it. To be individuals who have the ability to remove the obstacles that are preventing people from seeing God. In some cases, those obstacles are inside our own lives. In some cases, in most cases, they're probably external. But in many cases, the problem's not external. The problem is internal. And we really don't think 
it's, we're just not wired that way as human beings. We don't naturally think about other people first. We just don't. One thing humans have been really good at is taking care of uno number one. I grew up around all of it. You better watch out for yourself because nobody else is going to do it. You ever heard that one? And we wonder why our culture is pulling so far away from God. The truth is, the majority, and I believe this wholeheartedly, and I'll say it loud and proud, the majority of individuals in this country who are Christians, they're not looking for a God to serve. They're looking for a God to serve them. And it's not the way that it's supposed to be. How many of you guys have ever had a child or a grandchild go through something that, that hurt? And I mean emotionally. That's the natural tendency that we should have towards anybody. Because I don't know about you, when one of my kids got off the bus one day, came in with a picture, and some, some kid on the bus was teasing them. What do you think daddy wanted to do? Remove the obstacle. The interesting, the most interesting thing about these three verses, four, five, and six, is six. What's the result of straightening out all the crooked roads, taking down all the mountains, filling up all the valleys? You notice the first word in verse 6 is hand. In other words, you do these things and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It doesn't say that they will benefit from it, but they'll see it. Because it's supernatural for a human being to go contrary to the natural fallen nature. It's completely backwards. This is why people think we're weird. They think we're weird because we don't go out and, and in, indulge our uh, greatest desires. We don't do that. And if we do, we feel really rotten for it <laughs> until it sinks in that God forgives us. And all flesh shall. I don't support lottery tickets, but I'm saying this just for a point. If I told you you were guaranteed to win a lottery ticket, to win, would you be tempted to go buy it? Guaranteed. Now, if we were to take monetary value and put it up against eternal life, which of the two is more valuable? And I'm telling you that if we live a life as Christians where we're removing obstacles from individuals that are preventing them from seeing God, they see God everywhere when we remove those obstacles. Those obstacles from within our life. And again, folks, I say it again because people too many times are looking at church and going, church is just about a bunch of rules. It's too hard. They press down on people too much. There's way too many expectations. It's not about expectations. It's about responsibility. No matter how you lay it, responsibility does not leave because grace was given to us to forgive us of our sins. It's not how it works. There are an awful lot of people in the world today who say that they have grace. But are they showing 
the type of lifestyle that John was talking about? Here, take a look. Let's keep looking. Keep reading. Verse 7. He therefore began saying to the multitude who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who wanted you or who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The baptism we go through is a baptism of repentance. But it's a baptism of repentance as a result of our salvation. The baptism of repentance pre-death, burial, and resurrection was a baptism or a promise between that individual and God that the things that they know they're doing in their life that God would not see as honorable, that they would continue to turn away from those things. You don't think that that whole hypocrite problem was a 20th century problem, right? There were people back then who did it. And one of the strangest things, and he pointed it out in here, why did he jump straight to and don't say that you're a child of Abraham? There have been three people in 20 years, and I have sat down and had in-depth conversations. All three of them, um, God rest their soul, have passed on. These three individuals believed that they were saved by association. Did you hear me? They believed they were saved by association. The Jews back then believed that. They believed, well, I'm a child of Abraham, so I'm okay. And John's saying it has nothing to do with who you associate yourself with. It has to do with who you represent yourself as. An individual calls themselves a Christian. Does it make them a Christian? This day and age, it may happen in a couple of years. They want us to call men women and women men and boys and girls opposites and what are my pronouns? I don't care what your pronouns are. You have anybody call you anything you want to. It doesn't change the fact that you are what you are. A hypocrite's a hypocrite. A faker's a faker. A game player's a game player. A Christian's a Christian. That's the way that it works. And the Bible lays it out quite simply that way. Someone who's in Christ produces righteous acts. Somebody who is not in Christ produces unrighteous acts. That's just the way the result of the relationship's supposed to work. These three individuals, I sat down with every one of them. One of them thought that they were saved because their mom and dad was saved and took them to church all the time when they were a kid. One of them thought they were saved because they went to this church for like 40 years. And that was the way they answered the question. They come to these, the point in life where, where they're getting closer and closer to meeting their maker, and I go and sit down with them, and I say, hey, look, let's talk about Jesus. Do you, do, do you believe that when you die, you'll go to heaven? Well, yes, I believe when I die. Well, why do you think that you'll go to heaven when you die? Because I've been sitting in Highland Baptist Church for 40 years. And I, and I wanted, I didn't, but I wanted to say, so how long did it take? Because it would be nice to tie an unpopular person up in your garage and visually become a car, right? This is the way it works. 
In other words, the relationship isn't verbal. The relationship isn't based on just the good things that we get out of it. The relationship is based on leading the lost individuals in this world to Christ. I love Christmas songs. I love Christmas time. The celebrations, not because of the presents, not because of the food, not because of the family. The celebrations, not because of the time of the year, whether there's snow on the ground or not. The celebration is the birth of a baby that has the power to save every soul that has ever been and every soul that ever will be. And I really do believe that if we made the connection, that on some level all of us would consider ourselves hypocrites. Because, folks, the fact is, we sing Christmas songs, and we sing it. You listen to Christmas songs here? People sing Christmas songs louder than they sing the regular hymns. Might be because they're familiar, more familiar with them, they know them, the, whatever the reason is. Could you imagine us as individuals What's the result when you claim Christianity but don't live it? Is it just the choice of lifestyle and you're okay regardless? I don't want to kick a dead horse. But I hope that when you leave here today that you get the power the excitement. How many of you guys liked Christmas this year? Did you like it? I mean, Christmas is Christmas, right? We should like Christmas no matter what is going on in the world around us, right? Were you excited to go open presents? Excited to meet with family and eat? And what was all that for? Was it for the family? Because here's where I don't get it. We can be so excited over the event of Christmas. And then when it comes to the responsibility that came along as a result of that birth of the baby, many Christians want nothing to do with it. I was hearing gunshots Christmas. Never heard that before. New Year's, you usually hear a lot of gunshots out there. Christmas, you don't usually hear a lot of gunshots out there. A lot of people find... Christmas is just an opportunity to party, and whatever enjoyment an individual may get out of it is the enjoyment that they get out of it. And, and I'm not saying that every enjoyment that somebody gets out of it's wrong. There's absolutely good things about families getting together for Christmas. But it should be about families getting together for Christmas and celebrating the birth of that baby. And then it should be life after that should be, now what is expected of me as a result? But Christmas has become a holiday that's just like any other holiday. Let's do Christmas, have it done with, and and then we'll just move on with life the way that it's always been before, not what God called us to. Verse 9 says, also... And also, the axe is already laid at the, at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The multitudes were questioning him, and we'll go through some of them questions in a minute. 
What does he mean by the axe is already laid at the root of the trees? I want to save a tree. The axe is already laying at the root of it, at the foot of it. Then how much time is there to act? And this is symbolic. I mean, you, the Lord may grant us with 30, 40, 50 years. We may have opportunities to share the gospel with people. But, you know, you also may walk past somebody in Walmart that the Lord has opened the door to and provided an opportunity, and that person won't see tomorrow. At what point do you think Christians will get it? Here's my example. I proud myself in being, I pride myself in being a, a Christian husband. I personally think, or I should say, I personally thought that I was pretty good at it. I didn't need anybody else's input. I was just pretty good at it. Okay? When Diana almost died, I suddenly it dawned on me all of the flaws on my side of the relationship. It was an eye-opener. How many of you have friends or family that don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? And you know that he's not promised another day. He could fulfill the rest of these prophecies in a matter of a day or two. And when he decides it's time to come, nobody's talking him, nobody's talking him out of it. And I'm not necessarily saying you should be the one that's going to share the gospel with family members or friends. But I am saying that there is a sense of urgency about it to make sure they have the information in hand. Whether they make the choice or not, it's not up to me. But I would much rather somebody be suffering the consequences of their own choice than for them suffering the consequences for mine. Because if my choice is to not share the gospel with them and they get in their vehicle on a car accident and die, I don't care whether people say I'm responsible or not. Do you think that I'm not going to accept some responsibility? Yes, I'm going to accept responsibility. When a person needs help and I don't help them. When a person's hurting and I don't help them. When a person's seeking peace and can't find it. When a person's going through things. How do we help them? Got a phone call about three weeks ago from a man that said that he had a problem. Told me what the problem was. And he wanted to know if I'd counsel him. I said, no, I won't. He said, why not? I said, because what you did, you're going to go report yourself to the police. You report yourself to the police, come back and see me and we'll talk. Why do you think I'd do that? What do you think the guy's looking for? Because he didn't, he didn't contact me being willing to admit what he had done. He contacted me and wanted to talk to me because he wanted me to make him feel better. Should he feel better? I'm here to tell you, the act that he, that he committed, no, he should not feel better. 
So go suffer your consequences for the act that you know is wrong. Then come back and see me and we'll talk. We just want it easy. I mean, it's okay to say that. As human beings, we want it easy. Get me to heaven. Don't expect. Don't expect more than you should in order for me to move that direction. Grace is a wonderful thing until it's not because somebody's abused it. Let me close with this. It says in verse uh, 11, or verse 10, the multitudes were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. Tax gatherers also came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now the point's this, and I'll close with this. All of your lives are different. Not one of us are on the same uh, path or the same step on that path in life that Christ has, has brought us to. None of us are. Something that may apply to me may apply to you differently. That'll apply to you differently based on your personality, based on your employment, based on the circumstances that you're going to be in on an everyday scenario. This is why I can't stand up here and give you guys an itemized list of things that you need to do. That's why I would never do that. Because your lives are different. Your struggles are different from mine. They're just as real, but they're different. And God's going to deal with, with every one of us very differently, but he does have a standard of morality for everybody, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you work. The standard of morality is still there. Teachers don't teach things that aren't true. Preachers don't preach things that aren't true. Preachers be gentle. Church members be gentle. I mean, God's given us all of these things to help Remove the obstacles in individuals' lives that are preventing them from seeing God. And my encouragement to you is this. Take a look at where those obstacles are inside your own life. And then look at life and everybody else in it. What's the obstacle that's preventing them from seeing God? And then just be someone that through life is removing obstacles. Doesn't require a pickaxe. Doesn't require a post hole digger. Doesn't require a shovel. Doesn't require anything and usually very small amount of effort to remove an obstacle from an individual's life. The hardest part is not going to be the obstacles that are out there. The hardest part are going to be obstacles that are in here. But remember, whenever you're convicted, whenever you feel guilty, whenever you're encouraged by the Bible to, to repent into, a, into a, another area of your life, obstacles. It's preventing you from seeing God. It's preventing us from feeling God. And it's preventing other people from, from experiencing that as well. The message of the baby, it's a very worthy message, a very worthy story to tell. The responsibility of John the Baptist, 
is very important. Make straight the way of the Lord. If you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, and the Holy Spirit convicts you, don't just do it because you think it would be a cool thing to do. You'll know when the Lord gets a hold of you, if the Holy Spirit moves you, uh, whether you want to come up here, tell me after, we can talk on the phone, however you want to do it. Um, I'll take whatever time is necessary to make sure that you uh, clearly understand that. But believer, this message, was, I believe, was mostly for, for us because Christmas time, is exciting. Most of it is exciting because it's just things that we enjoy. All I'm asking is for you to find out why you're not just as excited two months after Christmas as you was the day of. Where's the obstacle? Thanks for listening. For more information about becoming a Christian, discipleship, or if you have prayer requests, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash Highland Southern BC. We look forward to hearing from you. As always, have a blessed week. The Highland Southern Baptist Podcast is produced by Zach Link with preaching by Keith Perrin. Music provided by Pixabay under Creative Commons.